this is Daryl. We have a great show for you today, talking about some of the greatest club teams of all time. We are going to be talking in detail about Pele's Santos team of the 1960s, Oh Santasticos, about Jose Mourinho's Chelsea 2004 to 2007, Ancelotti's Milan and Diego Maradona's Napoli of the late 80s. If you need even more soccer content in your life, please give our other show a listen, Soccer 101. We've recently published two short explainer episodes. There's a 10-minute episode where it's just me solo explaining Gam and Tam. I think I got it. I think I got it. And there's an episode with just Taylor explaining what a Bosman transfer is and how they came to be. Once again, that's Soccer 101. Today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting. It's all about making work from home work for you. It features indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated and productive at home. Remarkably Remote is here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find Remarkably Remote on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash T-I-P-S. Hello and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a recent convert to chocolate hobnobs. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. I am so happy you brought this up, my friend, uh, because (laughs) I have an update for you and it's a very important update. Okay. So when I first went, I bought you, did I buy you hobnobs or did I buy you the wrong thing? No, you brought me milk chocolate hot milk. Okay, but there are two different types I've now learned. And the first time I went, they only had the one, which is like the thinner kind of – still a biscuit but kind of wafer – the other one, which is like the proper chocolate hobnob, is like thick and has like – you can taste the wheat in it, as my wife said. That is the greatest thing I've ever eaten. Oh, wow. Get two of those next time you go, please. Dude, it – because you were the one who advised <laughs> dunking it into the tea, which – and yes. these things are so more like substantive than the thin ones that it really is like – it's like a biscuit, but it's a cookie that's been soaked in milk, but then it's delicious tea on there too. Oh, it's so good, man. Yep. It's so, so good. I'm so glad that I can share this cultural thing mm-hmm. with you. And, and for those who don't know, the, yeah. the reason it's so tasty is it's like an oatmeal cookie that's a little bit salty, right? But then one side is coated in chocolate, mm-hmm. and you can get milk chocolate or dark chocolate. And even that is a nice, you know, that salty and sweet oh, yeah. combo. Um, but once you dunk it in hot liquid, tea, obviously, if you're being British, it works in coffee too. It does. Um, it all melts together, and it just has an extra – the, the texture is just really satisfying. It is, and it must be satisfying for you doubly so because the background to this is that I think I was shopping in the grocery store, and there was a British food section, and I sent you a photo of it of just like the food of your people is trash or something like that. I think <laughs> I've been hanging out with Alexis too much at that point. And you responded, try chocolate hobnobs and then get back to me. You are correct, my friend. <laughs> that is the saving grace of your entire cuisine. I appreciate that you did get back to me. I did. I did. (laughs) Oh, British culture is alive and well. Next, we're going to talk about cricket. (laughs) Let's not. We're going to talk about some clubs that were formed because people founded cricket clubs and then were like, you know what? Never mind. Let's get rid of the cricket. Let's talk football. Yeah, the the big topic on today's show, Mm -hmm. we're going to have two more matchups in our historical cup, um, which I'm currently naming uh, the Bill and Ted Cup of Soccer History. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're giving it a different are you so you're changing the name you're not expounding upon the current name every time 
I mean, it could be the champions, champions, Bill and Ted Cup of History. <laughs> I, I, uh, I think the recent one when we were texting with Travis Clark is I added international to it. So now it was the oh, international lovely. champions, champions Cup of History. Cup of Bill and Ted History. That's fine, too. <laughs> Sponsored <laughs> and by Bill and Ted. And their, whatever their new journey is going to be in the third movie. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm genuinely excited for that. <laughs> well, can um, we get them as a sponsor, please? <laughs> Let's just say they're the sponsor. Let's just do it. Whatever that movie is called, that's what it's going to be. Today's show sponsored by Alex and Keanu. <laughs> sponsored by Bill and Ted TBD. <laughs> um, today's show really is, we're going to be talking about Pele's Santos versus Mourinho's Chelsea. So we'll get into both of those teams and then try and figure out what would happen um, if they went up against each other. We're going to assume everybody's fully vaccinated for the trips back and forward through history, mm-hmm. right? So it's all fine. Um, and we're also going to have Ancelotti's Milan versus Maradona's Napoli. Mm-hmm. So this is the Ancelotti team of the 2000s against that Napoli team of the late 80s that was, it was all about Maradona, but there was more to that team than Maradona, I think is bo- both of our stances. On yeah, this it turns team, out right? it wasn't just uh, Maradona by himself on the field for every single game i didn't know i didn't know but now i do 10 cutouts (laughs) yes (laughs) yeah so we're going to talk about all that um also i want to give if you'll permit me taylor Mm. a quick uh cancer update yeah i think we'll have it we'll have to have a cancer segment on the show just because i haven't let people know what's been going on lately um so i've been doing the clinical trial now since what september late august september and things are going really well a lot of tumors have disappeared and the tumors in my liver, the only ones left, like, I think at least half of them are disappeared. And we're sort of left with two, two stubborn guys that are responding to immunotherapy, but responding a little slower than the other guys. Th- that's amazing. I-, I didn't even know that update because last we talked about it, I think there were still signs of cancer or signs of tumors in other areas. So it's really it's just fo- focused, localized in the liver now. Yes, it is. Yeah. And that's they're so exciting, sort of man. S- they've been slowly shrinking. Most recent scans, they were staying about the same, which is still like good news because it means they haven't figured out a way around the uh, the immunotherapy. Um, and the big reason I wanted to share this with listeners is this all takes me back to January, February 2019 when you know I first got this diagnosis, um, and everybody contributed so generously to the to the GoFundMe, and we raised a lot of money. And I'm really aware that a lot of the donations were from Total Soccer Show listeners. Um, and basically, the reason I was able to do the clinical trial is because of that GoFundMe money. Absolutely. Or at least the reason I can do it without like going deep, deep into debt. Yes. Right. Yeah. And it's the reason I was, cause it's a bit of a gamble, right? When I first did it, it was a gamble. We didn't know if it would work or not or be any, have any success at all. But knowing that, that that funding was there made me think, all right, I, I can afford to try this. I can afford to gamble. And, uh, and so far, it's going really well. I mean, yeah. that is... That is like not trying to put your business too much in the streets, but no, I, put it. I, I'm I'm happy to. Share I mean, this. I'm correct I'm not, in saying yeah. that like basically you are able to do this trial in Boston because of that GoFundMe money, right? Yeah, I mean, it was that or get a, a huge line of credit from someone, right? <laughs> right, and may, maybe medical bankruptcy down the line. But I just remember uh, when but, you started yeah. it being like, I feel sort of like this is like too much, like it's been too much of an outpouring, and I'm not sure. Like I feel like I should cap it, and and in the end, basically, oh, when we raised the money, yeah, yeah. this yeah. has allowed you to, as you said, like not become financially destitute while remaining alive, and yep. that's pretty amazing. And I, I genuinely did not know that it had gone that well and progress to this point uh i recently have made a move uh personally to stop knocking on wood about stuff because i heard an <laughs> astronaut once say that if you're knocking on wood you're going to be in trouble and i think that's probably smart so i'm not even going to knock on wood i'm just going to say that this is amazing news and i'm really happy that it's going well daryl and i will say i mean i've shared every update with you mm-hmm. but i think it's been so incremental yeah. that there hasn't been one big moment right but in just my recent meeting with my um oncologist in boston he kind of spelled out to me the situation 
You know what I mean? Yeah. And it made me think, oh, wow. Like, when you look at it big picture, instead of on this month-to-month basis like we have been, then, yeah, things are, things are going well. And it's not like, it's not like cured mm-hmm. and guaranteed gone, all that kind of stuff. It's just that um, it's, it's been going really well, and we just hope it continues to go really well, In- obviously. Indeed. And, uh, like, not to put a downer on things, a damper on things, but I- I'm sure there are some people who are maybe new to the show or haven't heard us talk about this before, but it's localized in the liver now, which is good, but it's not then the situation, right, that you could just sort of, like, remove part of it, the liver will re- regrow, and you're good to go. It is still fairly complex and fairly difficult, right? Yeah, although we did talk about maybe doing that in the nearest future, Whoa. so that 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 has become a possibility for the first time because it wasn't it's it got, wasn't possible before. It's got real dusty in this. Uh, yeah, this sorry, office of mine. Wow, I hadn't I hadn't shared that with you. Today. We, we actually haven't seen each other. No, I mean we haven't. Wow. That's that's amazing news, dude. That's so <laughs> yeah. exciting. Wow. All right. So, so that's what, that's what's going on that's right now. That's some good so news in a world that does not have that much good news right now. <laughs> so I want to say a huge thank you to everybody who um, contributed to the GoFundMe, everybody who shared the GoFundMe, um, and everybody who's sent me good wishes over the last uh, what's it been, uh, fourteen, fifteen months or so. Dude, I can't believe that. That's so exciting. You're gonna get to see the third Bill and Ted movie, Daryl. <laughs> Third Bill and Ted, November 2020 election. Um, <laughs> but to begin with, my goal was just to see uh, the final Avengers movie. So <laughs> that's, pretty well. that's, that's good. I'm, I'm glad. And, and, it, and yeah. it's also good that that lived up to the hype. I remember Warren Zevon. He said he wanted to live to see the, the next James Bond movie, which is the one where he like surfs and there are diamond lasers and people change <laughs> their faces. And it was probably the worst Bond movie of all time. I always felt bad for him on that one. So at least you got I a good also, Avengers movie. My, I also, at the time, uh, since it was January 2019, was all about living to see the end of Game of Thrones. And oh. that, um, I mean, I'm glad I lived, but I'm, I don't, I'm not sure that was worth living for. <laughs> yeah. Well, Game of Thrones officially <laughs> died in season six, right? <laughs> yeah. Man, that drawing of that horse has never been so accurate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about other things. Let's talk instead yeah, let's talk about, about allocation disorder, shall we? Yeah, so Allocation Disorder, the podcast from uh, Paul Tenorio and Sam Steschkel, it normally publishes in our feed on Thursday or Friday. Listeners may have noticed that there wasn't one this week. Taylor knows why. Uh, I do. It's because it just wasn't good enough, Paul and Sam. Try again next week. No, uh, it was basically they, they did uh, – Paul, Sam, and Matt Pence did a draft of uh, national team players starting from the year 2002 and on. Uh, they basically assembled three teams and then I think recorded themselves talking some trash about those squads, but that article is not yet out. So we, we held off until it's ready to go. Hopefully I'm not spoiling anything. I'm not giving any of the teams. I have seen the teams. Uh, some are stronger than others. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to ask for any details. I'm going to wait to see the article and hear the podcast. Right. So we expect Allocation Disorder in our feed, mm-hmm. what, maybe next week? Yes. Uh, I think er- early next week is the goal there. So they'll be talking uh, about their sort of draft of all-time uh, American players. Uh, but before that happens, Daryl, we're going to probably talk a little bit about a different aspect of American soccer. We should probably talk about the yeah. U.S. Women's National Team ruling that came out yesterday. It felt like a news dump, except that since weekends are kind of meaningless at this point, uh, I don't know if it still counts as a 5 o'clock Friday news dump. Yeah, so in the um, equal pay discrimination uh, lawsuit, the judge basically ruled or found in U.S. soccer's favor and ruled that the U.S. women's national team cannot go forward to trial with their claim uh, for equal pay mm-hmm. is, the, is the basis of it, right? And correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, Taylor. Um, the, judges, uh, the judge 
judge, the judges, what's, what's the correct word? Ruled? I guess ruled? Yeah. Um, that, his decision uh, because, that he delivered was. There you go. Okay, yeah. His decision that he delivered was um, because they'd agreed to a CBA that was essentially more focused on a guaranteed floor of compensation rather than going heavy on bonuses, that the, the women's national team couldn't then claim afterwards that if they'd, they'd had a CBA that was more like the men's, which was very bonus heavy um, and less guaranteed compensation, mm. they couldn't afterwards then claim that they should have been paid on, on that basis or they would have earned more being paid on that basis. Right. And so then I think they stuck to the the line of reasoning of, so if we're going with the CBA that you did choose, because like you did kind of have the freedom to have those two options, you went with the one you did, you did effectively make more money than the men's team. I think they made 8000 more a game, uh, $24.5 to $18.5 million on the year. But that's that includes so it's 2015 to 2019 years, I should say, on the years, then, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 2015 to 2019 is the period that mm-hmm. was being looked at for to, like total earnings. That includes the men missing a World Cup. Right. So if the men had gone to the World Cup, and even if they'd failed spectacularly at the World Cup, the bonuses for going th- mm-hmm. to a World Cup would have meant that the men would have earned way more than the women in this period, right? But from what from what I understand, the judges' uh, ruling was not based purely on those numbers it was based on the idea of how the two cbas were structured and then he used that total compensation as sort of just a, a thing to back up his argument as opposed to the thing he based the argument on yeah right okay or, i actually don't know if the judge was uh, a man or a woman uh, uh it was so it was a man I, I do believe okay all right so what else what else was ruled um the he also found that um couldn't go forward with the claim of discrimination uh for playing on artificial turf mm-hmm. uh not because the judge is pro-artificial turf, but just that he couldn't find evidence of discrimination in the decisions to play on artificial turf. I think it was kind of like, it just seemed like games just needed to be played. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are two things that can go forward, right? Was it um, uh, flights, the quality of flights and the quality of accommodation? Right. Um, and it was also the quality um, and the resources uh, put towards basically backroom staff. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. exactly that, essentially. So there, there can be a little bit of movement, which I think some legal experts would say was always the more likely uh, route for this one to go, that the, the kind of initial aspect would be dismissed of we, we should be paid more. There was uh, discrimination. In fact, uh, Judge Gary Klausner ruled that there is no uh, gender discrimination, uh, which is an interesting thing to rule. I think some people will take issue with the phrasing of that one. But uh, yeah, that, that was a big part of it. But then there were the aspects of kind of financial imbalance that can uh, move forward that we would expect to either be dealt with maybe in a settlement more so than a lawsuit at this point, or maybe when they do the next CBA, it will just be adjusted accordingly. Yes, I think this is the thing worth knowing. Um, that right now, there is a lawsuit going to move forward, but it will be focused on the uh, like hotels and flights and uh, resources for backroom staff, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Um, but before it moves forward, there'll probably be an attempt to settle from U.S. soccer because mm-hmm. that's what they want, right? They don't want a lawsuit. They want to settle. This puts U.S. soccer in a much stronger position, but it also puts them in a position to reach out an olive branch and make a generous offer, right? Like if they now have to like, be this 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 decision went in their favor if they called called the women's national team in and like made them an offer and it was a zero that they pushed across mm-hmm. the table then we get to a nasty situation again right yeah but if they show some some generosity right now and offer a pretty good settlement that says okay yeah we understand that, that we should have done better in the past even though the judge hasn't found legally in our favor i think that's a path towards a much more harmonious future 
And then, of course, there's the new CBA to be signed in 2021. So I think there's an opportunity here for everybody to get along and get on the same page and sort of for everybody to come out happy. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how much of what we've seen before this uh, decision and then after it is posturing versus how much of it is genuine. Uh, yeah. Megan Rapinoe, Christian Press, tweeting that they're gonna uh, they're never going to stop fighting for equality. We'll continue to fight for equal pay. Uh, so, There'll be an appeal, right? right? There'll be an appeal. Exactly. Possibly, yeah. So I think it, like I, I like your sort of rose-tinted uh, view of the way things could play out but i think it is heavily dependent on does the women's team sort of see this as okay this is kind of realistically what we thought was going to happen but we've kind of pressed our claim publicly it sets us in a better position for a better cba in which case we'll take that and things will be fine or if it does end up being a no we're going to file this appeal we're going to fight tooth and nail to see what can happen to see if we can put ourselves in a better position now then it probably does get a little bit more acrimonious before it gets any better Here's to no acrimony. Yeah, um, I'd agree with if that. you want, if you want some good legal analysis, obviously Talia and I can only provide the sort of layman's interpretation mm-hmm. of what's going on with the lawsuit. I always read on Twitter, um, Professor Stephen Bank. Um, I think he's Prof Bank on Twitter. Uh, Mickey Turner um, is yeah. really good. And Neil Blackman is really good. They're all like soccer fans, but also people with a legal background um, who can really interpret what's going on. And then, you know, from a women's soccer perspective, we always read Meg Linehan and Caitlin Murray. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure there are other good writers out there, but those are the, our two go-tos usually. Mickey Turner, also one of the friendliest people I've met in the last like five years. So I, yes. I, I, I love me some Mickey Turner. I love me Wait, some Caitlin met, Murray where? and Meg Linehan as well. Yeah, when I was in Seattle for MLS Cup. Oh, of course, mm-hmm. of course, of course. Yes. Yeah. When you insisted on spending quality time with your wife. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I genuinely did. It really was. But it was also in between us doing like 15 other things and you traveling yeah. a whole bunch and yeah, dealing with cancer as well, I think was part of the uh, explanation there. I had to go to Total Soccer Show HR and uh, request, a, <laughs> request a compassionate leave of absence. <laughs> Usually the way you, uh, we utilize uh, Total Soccer Show HR is to push recording back 30 minutes at a time. <laughs> we have an official uh, piece of paperwork for that. Before to fill out. <laughs> it's got to all be documented, Taylor. Of course. It's got to all be Those documented. Those are the rules. <laughs> all right, before we get to um, today's marquee matchups, mm-hmm. Santos versus Chelsea I'm so and M- Milan versus Napoli, uh, we have got a little update on the way this tournament is going, right? So it's mm-hmm. a 32-team tournament, teams from history. We've heard a lot of pitches for like other teams that should have been in this tournament. Um, and, you know, we've heard people's arguments for this and that. And we are going to have a couple of play-ins here and okay. there to work in certain teams, right? Like the 91 Red Star Belgrade team. Um, Eldin Hasic made a good case for them. I've actually seen that team play on TV. Completely forgot about them. They also have a fascinating history because yes. they're broken up by the, uh, the Civil War in Yugoslavia. Uh-huh. So, yeah, but there was some talent on that team. Yes, yes. So I'm really excited to have Red Star in the tournament. Uh, the other one that I think we're going to include for sure is not one that I advocated for. I would like that noted up front. It's Manchester United from 2008. I think a team that maybe we overlooked a little bit because we already had the 99 team in there, because we already had the 68 team in there, having another Man United squad felt like a bit of overkill. But then you look at that team winning the Champions League. They go to two more in the ensuing like three seasons. They win the Premier League a couple times there. It's like near the end of Sir Alex Ferguson. So there's some different like tactical changes and stuff like that. So it makes sense to include them, I suppose. We'll probably have them do a play in against another English team. It's Fergie's third great team, yeah. basically, right? There's the Cantona team, which didn't quite make it, right? Because I think they didn't have any European success that we could point to. Um, then there's the treble winning mm-hmm. team, like Beckham and all that. Um, and then there's this team with Ronaldo and Rooney. Ronaldo's scoring like 40 goals a season yeah. for this team. And right? shooting from everywhere. <laughs> yeah. At all I times. can tell you, the, re- the reason I wasn't keen to include them to begin with, I just didn't suggest them, is that there's clear evidence from the era that Guardiola's Barcelona were mm-hmm. the better team, yes. right? Because every time they came up against each other, Barcelona 
like just thrashed Man United um, uh, more tactically than scoreline wise. But um, it was definitely like this is the better team. But what I'm learning here is as we're doing this, there are some teams like it depends on the tactical matchup, yeah. right? So it could be that by the time that if that Man United team goes through, by the time they get to later rounds, maybe Guardiola's Barcelona is already knocked out. So we could find out that they're the second best team in history. It would be weird because we are going to get to a point where we're going to have some game, some teams playing each other in games that actually happened. And we can sort of go back and look at it and yes. be like, and then I think at that point, we just have to sort of, my approach will be like, let's say we did get like Liverpool 2005 versus like the Milan team we're going to talk about today. If they happen to end up together, if they both advanced. It would be a little bit strange, but I think I would probably end up like kind of throwing that game out as it happened and maybe just looking at them again and deciding, was that a yeah. one in a million moment or was that a thing that like Liverpool probably do win that game every single time? I mean, how about we replay that 2005 final from a Milan perspective and you just like glue Kaka's shin guards to his, <laughs> to his shins so we can't mess with them at the crucial moment yeah. and allow Vladimir Smitsa to score that all-important goal. For more on that game, there is an episode of Soccer 101 in which we review in depth uh, the... The uh, 2005 Milan versus Liverpool miracle of Istanbul. Um, the, the miracle, I believe, is uh, Kaka Shingard coming. Yeah, that is definitely it. I also feel <laughs> slightly foolish having picked that game as my example, given that two years later <laughs> we have the balance to it. So it really would be yes. series tied one to one. Our matchup would be the one that decides it. But we're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about some other teams <laughs> in the International Champions Champion Cup of History, sponsored by Bill and Ted. Face the music. <laughs> Face the music. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called? It is. Oh, absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Before we uh, before we get to that, yes, let's talk sir. about today's real sponsor. Let's do it. Today's real sponsor. It's a newbie. Welcome to the show, Sunday Scaries. Mm-hmm. Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that are super consumable and easy to take on the go. Vitamin D, very important. B12, very important. Feeling relaxed, especially important, especially these <laughs> days. Uh, yeah, I feel like you can take the Sunday Scaries for their intended purpose of you're kind of anxious about the work week starting on Monday. You're getting the Sunday Scaries. You have some P- CBD, maybe you feel a little bit better. Nowadays, you can kind of take the Sunday Scaries whenever you want because there's <laughs> reason for anxiety uh, across the board. So hopefully Sunday Scaries can help you any day of the week. Every day is like Sunday. Yeah. Um, Sunday Scaries has become a leading CBD brand for millennials and won top accolades uh, last year from Forbes, Men's Health, Allure, and Best Products. That's like a good combination know, of things. Yeah, I don't know what Allure is, but I've heard of the other three. Allure is a, 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 I think, like women-centric, female-centric uh, fashion magazine. I could uh, well okay. be wrong. All right. But that's what I say. It's like I feel like they've got Men's Health, a women's magazine, financial stuff, and then just Best Products. I feel like that's four four, uh, vouchers that I would appreciate. They're also giving back. Um, Sunday Scaries recently launched Cabin Scaries to promote social distancing (laughs) and responsible isolation. Listen up, some people in Michigan. Um, A portion of sales will be donated to BEAP, the Bartender Emergency Assistance Program, to help displaced hospitality workers. That does sound a little bit like FBI being female body inspector. But yes, Bartender Emergency Assistance Program, (laughs) uh, very useful at a time when, yeah, there are not many bartenders slaying drinks these days. Uh-uh. So you can also get 25% off, 25% off is how you're supposed to pronounce that, with your first order. If you use the code SOCCER, use the code SOCCER for 25% off at sundayscaries.com. That's 25% off your first order at sundayscaries.com. The code is SOCCER. Where, Where do we put the code, Taylor? Where it asks for a coupon on the checkout page, you can, on the page, excuse me, uh, find out what product might be best for you. Uh, go to sundayscaries.com. Use pro, promo code SOCCER, as Daryl already said. Thank you very much to Sunday Scaries for sponsoring 
this episode and helping us feel relaxed as we move into the the major tournament that we know will dominate all the headlines for years to come. The Bill and Ted Cup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Face the music. All right. So we've got <laughs> Pele's Santos of the 60s against Jose Mourinho's Chelsea of roughly 2004 to 2007. Uh, the way this draw panned out is that Santos at home, so it's Chelsea, are getting in the, is it a phone box that Ben and Ted have? Um, and, go, and going back to the 60s. I think it is. A, a telephone booth has been a... A very important fixture in pop culture <laughs> in the 20th yeah. century, at least. Uh, but yeah. Definitely, definitely in time travel. And George Carlin will certainly be the master of ceremonies for this competition at this point. <laughs> but yes, let's start with uh, that Santos team. They're playing at home. The Santastics. Did you see that nickname? I did. I saw it in Brazilian Portuguese. Yeah. Um, Os Santásticos. Yes, sir. I feel like it sounds better. Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah. And it's justified. 25 titles, uh, pieces of silverware between 1959 and 1974. A decent yeah. return. But we're going to focus on that 62-63 yes. squad. Because that Os Santicos era is basically the Pelé years, yeah. right? When Santos <laughs> were wonderful. Yeah. But there was a time when Pelé was at his absolute peak. And essentially, the justification for this team being in this tournament is um, in 1961 and 1962, this team won back-to-back Copa Libertadores, which, you know, if you're new to soccer, that's like the South American Champions League, and it's a big, big deal. And two, Intercontinental Cups, which is basically the Club World Cup mm-hmm. of its day. So they won back-to-back uh, Copa Libertadores and Club World Cups. And in 1962, the first Continental treble, which means they won the Brazilian championship. Um, there wasn't a Brazilian like FA Cup type thing, but they had the state championship, the Paulista, which is competitive, and the Libertadores. And then later that year, the, uh, the, Inter- the, uh, the Club World Cup mm-hmm. intercontinental title. So this is the first team to do one of those treble clean sweep situations. And I don't know if you're like me, but I found myself valuing the Intercontinental Cup much more than I, I would value yeah. the Club World Cup. Uh, Do you know why? Because when I when I watch the footage, mm-hmm. everybody seems to be taking it very, very, very seriously. Yeah. And it is not played in some far-flung country where everybody's far from home. Mm-hmm. It was two legs, right, with each team hosting a leg each time. And I don't think there was that divide at the, at the time of like, oh, European soccer is definitely better. Um, like everybody knows European soccer is better. This South American mm-hmm. team's like not, got no chance. It really was more of a balance, right? Like Brazil won the 58 and 62 World Cups with like heavily domestic teams. I want to say the 62 World Cup, at least, was all players who Mm. were playing in Brazil. Yeah, and so this is, and these games, the 62 and 63 Intercontinental Cups are obviously happening after the 62 World Cup has taken place. So Pele is this household name. So you are having him come to your house. You want to beat him. You want to show that you uh, can be the best European club to beat the best player in the world. Uh, And they don't do that. Uh, But I think that (laughs) them taking it that seriously, and and a good indicator of that would be that like some of their games, they have replays. Like the the 1963 final, it goes to a third game because it's tied after the first two. Like, can you imagine a scenario in which they would have the Club World Cup lasted longer than it initially intended because they needed to have the two teams play each other again? Like, that is Absolutely never, not. ever going to happen. All right, let's talk about this Santos sure. team then mm-hmm. from, like, basically 61 to 62. Obviously, the star is Pele. So before we talk about everything else, I really want to talk about just how great Pele was during this era. Mm-hmm. This is Pele in his basically early to mid-20s, right? This is Pele at his absolute best. Um, and I think it really is worth just listing off the things that Pele can do. I mean, we, we did an entire 101 episode about it, but yeah, go ahead, list them. 
It's everything. Mm-hmm. The man is fast. The man can dribble. The man is strong. The man is not tall and yet somehow is really good in the air. Like he's a magnificent finisher. He's great at coming deep and connecting play and providing for other people. I just, I can't think of a soccer skill that Pele doesn't possess. Every time I watch footage of him, and I've also been watching Maradona in this same period, I am convinced that Pele is the greatest soccer player of all time. Uh, yeah, and this is yeah. him at his peak. This is peak Pele. I get, I agree. I also understand even more so why it really does come down to those two. And and nowadays, obviously, Messi, Ronaldo, but those two especially. And there are similarities in the way they play as well. That The thing that stood out to me, and in a lot of the reading, things that seemed to stand out to the authors as well, was Pele's ability to kill a ball dead with his thigh and then still hit yeah. the ball with, like, inch-perfect accuracy. A lot of times from a toe smash, but he, like, put himself in such a good position <laughs> that he could finish so adeptly. Whereas it's the same thing with Maradona. Maradona brings that ball down. He can kill it dead. It's that, like, tight control... But then, you, as you pointed out with Pele, the incredible number of other skill sets he has and the versatility of his game, and even his size, it puts him in this kind of next-level ability because he can do so much. I went into this mm-hmm. thinking, this is going to be the great Pele and just 10 other blokes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. But the more I looked into it, the more I understand that, one, these are magnificent footballers. Like, seven of the 11 players that I can see in a starting lineup were in Brazil's 1962 World Cup winning squad, Mm -hmm. right? So one of them is Pelé, but six of the others are not Pelé, and they're World Cup winners. So these are not just, like, fellas who were hanging around with (laughs) Pelé. These are world-class footballers at the time. And I think the other big argument for this team is that a lot of them came through the Santos youth system together and then stuck together. That's the story of this team, right, Taylor? Yeah, because Pelé even, like, does come through the system in that I think he's somebody's 15 or 16 years old, but has already been playing for like three years at that point. But he's coming in as a 16-year-old to a club where in 1956 you already have uh, it's Gilmar, Mauro, Zito, Pepe, Pagao, all already there, already kind of established professionals. All five of those players play in the 1962 Copa Libertadores final. So you see this kind of incredible swell of youth talent uh, in the area because of economic development. There's more money, there's more soccer, there's uh, more ability to play soccer. So you you have this kind of like gr- core group coming through the academy that then basically plays together until the end. So to expand it out from Pelé a little bit, yeah. the, the partnership I want to focus on is Pelé and Coutinho, sure. the number nine. So I will bet most people listening to this show have never heard of Coutinho. I had never heard of Coutinho until I started doing my research for this episode, right? So Pelé gets all the limelight. In this period, I know Pelé scores a thousand goals, or theoretically, mm-hmm. <laughs> Coutinho scores almost 400 yeah. Right, And he comes through at roughly the same time as plays for Santos as a teenager. Him and Pele have this partnership for like 15 or more years, right? Playing, playing for Santos. And when you watch them play, there is this almost telepathic link up, right? Mm-hmm. And it's Coutinho is the number nine and Pele is his strike partner. But wearing the number 10, he's also able to drift around a lot more. In all the games I saw... They were just endless one-twos and layoffs. And like it's like Pelé knew where Coutinho was going before anybody else did and vice versa. Mm-hmm. They combined for so many goals that I, I think this, is, this might be the strike partnership. Yeah, and, and, and it also is a strike partnership that I feel like it's easy, again, to sort of dismiss Coutinho because Pele is there. And, like, I did that. When I think we talked about this uh, a couple days ago, I was saying, like, if you watch it, it's like, yeah, Coutinho scored a brace, but he scored a brace because Pele dribbled through 15 people and then squared to him and he tapped it home. That happens on occasion, not always, but sometimes. But even then, it still is that sort of messy Suarez. They know how to play play, uh, with each other. They know where each other is going to be. They know the movement. And so, like, 
it, it doesn't just happen to be the case that Coutinho was wide open at the back post for that scoring ball from Pele. He has adjusted his run and sort of done what he needed to do to find positioning, and it's because he is a very good forward. And forgive me for, for extending this further, but I wanted to, with what you said about how it's like, it's 10 blokes and Pele, I, I, under, I understand where you're coming from, and I think you're correct in that you were incorrect with that summary. But it <laughs> is still fitting because it's like, it's 10 very good slash world-class players, but it, that kind of dynamic is still the case because Pele is that good. So yes, to me, like, it. Yeah. it really cemented Ten, how good he is. It's 10 world-class players and the greatest player of all exactly. time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly, man. <laughs> um, if you'll permit me, I just want to Please. give you a quick tactical setup. Mm-hmm. So it is roughly... A 4-2-4 it is, yep. that, uh, is how this Santos team plays. Um, the two central midfielders are Zito and Mengalvio. Zito is, you know, a very famous player in his own right. He was the more sort of defensive player who would just win the ball and then and then move it on, essentially. But he was kind of the key to this team. Right? I, would you say, um, I was trying to think of a modern comparison. Would you say it's roughly like a Casemiro for Real Madrid that like win the ball back, yes. keep it going, not a lot of flash, not a lot of flair, but like just keep the ball moving, be the tempo, be the, uh, the organizer, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's literally a Brazilian number five, right? You know how we talk about the number six, the sort of uh, holding midfielder? In Brazil, that's the number five. That's why you see Zito wearing the number five shirt. It's when you, it's why like Fabinho is a number five for Mm -hmm. Liverpool, right? So he, yeah, he is the classic Brazilian number five. Again, World Cup winner. He's, he's in that 62 uh, World Cup squad. So it's you four, two, and you've got a front four. Of again, Pele and Coutinho. We've talked about that partnership, right? Coutinho is the number nine, stays up. Pele can drift around underneath him or or go beyond him. It really, really works. On the right wing, you've got Dorval, the number seven, who's you know right-footed right winger. As I as I've seen it, he kind of stays on the touchline, and his job is dribble to the end line, get crosses yep. in. Pele or Coutinho will head them home. Um, on the left wing, you've got Pepe, who almost sounds like Pele, mm-hmm. who I believe did he come through the Santos mid system as well? Yeah, he was one of those players um, I listed. Yeah. He's a right-footed left winger who basically tends to drift in field mm-hmm. and will join Coutinho and Pelé. So you've got a sort of extra striker coming in from the left who, again, has played with these guys his entire life. That's the genius of this Santos team. Yeah. And and I want to go a little bit more with some of that genius and some of the way this team was set up because with that 4-2-4 you would, it would kind of be easy to think like, oh, well, a modern system is going to completely overwhelm that, especially that two in the middle. That's not going to get the job done. Um, but that was where, uh, in some of my reading, it sort of invites you to cap- try to capitalize on that. But then the way the team is structured, they're actually going to have numbers there to deal with that because they have uh, a thing that is, I guess, very common in Brazil, but I was not aware of is uh, Cuarto Zaguero. Have you ever heard of that term? It's basically, it just means fourth defender, but it's the defender whose job is specifically to step into the midfield to prevent the overload. So they had, it was usually, I think it was Mauro or uh, Calvet, where like it was one of the other would be tasked with that one. But then you had uh, the Maya Armador, the midfield playmaker, the number eight who keeps the ball moving, and the key one would be the Ponte de Lancha, the number 10, who you've already talked about with Pele, who drops into midfield. But you really do then sometimes have a midfield four. So if you try to yeah. overload that, you kind of can't do it because they have four midfielders stepping in there to kind of balance things out, one of whom is Pele, who can definitely do some stuff under pressure. And that, I think, is going to be crucial with the tactical battle with Mourinho's Mm -hmm. Chelsea, which we'll get to in a minute. The the final thing I want to just uh, make note of with this team is I was thinking about the Santos team in relation to the uh, Real Madrid Galacticos team of the 50s that we were talking about. And they played like that's 3-2-5, and maybe it wasn't that defensively solid, right? And that's ultimately why we had them losing to... Who did they lose to? Arsenal's Invincibles Mm -hmm. in the end, right? 
my understanding of this Santos team is they had all those youth players come through, those attacking youth players, Pele, Coutinho, Pepe. Uh, you got Zito and Mangalvio in midfield. Where they spent the money to, to bolster the team and make sure that they could beat the rest of South America and Europe's best, they spent the money on the defense, right? Right. They bought Gilmar, the goalkeeper. They bought uh, Mauro, the number two, who would uh, do a lot of the a lot of the big defending. I think there's a fullback that they bought as well. Like, they deliberately spent the money to bolster the defense to make sure all this all this young attacking talent that had come through was going to be sort of uh, have a, a really heavy backstop behind it. That's what makes me believe in this team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then even uh, I agree with you. And then even other players, uh, because one of the points that I thought was really interesting is their manager Lula is a little bit overlooked because it's Pele and Pele is going to do everything and. and and again, I don't. I think that that is correct to some extent. But some of the things Lula did was identify some of that talent, including I think you mentioned him er, earlier, uh, Dalmo or Dolval, excuse me. But like two players that I think yeah. uh, Dalmo, especially like rejected by other clubs, he gives him a trial. He figures out a way to make him fit and kind of converts him and changes it up and, and gets the best out of him. And he ends up, I believe, scoring the game winner in the 1963 Intercontinental Cup final. So you also have Lula, who's able to kind of get the best out of a lot of different players. Then they spend some money, but they've got academy products coming through, and what you end up with is just this. Very very balanced team that needs Pele. They do need Pele because in some games when he's not there, they don't win. And then he shows up and scores like three goals and they end up winning. Everybody needs Pele. Yes. All right. There's, there's our Santicos, Taylor. Mm-hmm. I think we, we're going to be aware of time yep, and yep, move yep. on to Jose Mourinho's yep. Chelsea. So this is whatever you think of Mourinho right now, forget about it, right? Mm-hmm. Cast your mind back to 2004 when Jose Mourinho is what, 40, 41 years old. He's just won the Champions League with Porto and he takes over at Chelsea. He's got Abramovich's money to spend and he builds a team that wins the Premier League back to back and is, I think the correct word for them is um, relentless, yeah. um, punishing and fearsome. Yeah, it is. I will say up front, like I will fully own. I have a lot of emotional investment with this team and not as a fan. I remember this team being terrifying and frightening from top to bottom. And it starts with like, yeah, we we think of Mourinho now as like the Carl Anka joke about when he shaves his head, you know, he's in trouble. Go back and look at Jose Mourinho from this era. And it it is the the puppet, Jose Mourinho. It's like the perfectly coiffed hair, the scarf. Yeah. Everything is looks meticulous and just like, yeah, he just looks immaculate. And that represents this team that like, he just looks like there's not a a little piece of lint on him. Everything is perfect, as (laughs) is his team. And then that team, it is just... It's the money obviously allows it to be the case when you have a billionaire, one of the richest people in the world to take over your team, you're going to have the money to spend. But the team they do assemble, sometimes it takes a longer time and sometimes there's a lot of missteps along the way. And there are a few with Chelsea, but for the most part, they just build this team that I remember when United would go up against them just thinking like, there's just no way. Like they're not, they cannot beat this team. Like Darren Fletcher, though he may score a goal here and there against Chelsea, is not going to overwhelm Claude Makalele or Frank Lampard <laughs> or Michael Essien. Let me walk you through this team. Please. Then. So... Petr Cech in goal. I've heard of in him. Front, in front of him, it's the centre-back partnership of John Terry and Ricardo Carvalho. And I think that partnership is important. Terry is like the... Uh, it's almost like an old-fashioned Italian stopper-sweeper mm-hmm. type setup, right? Terry is the one who will step out and battle and win everything. Carvalho is the one that is quicker and a bit better with the ball. So they have this, they have this, uh, they have this partnership. I also found a great quote from Carvalho. With him, everything was natural. This is on playing with Pelé. We didn't need to... Sorry, I'm playing with Terry. Carvalho, I'm playing with Terry. Um, with him, everything was natural. We didn't need to t- talk during match of, matches. Wow. Each of us knew how the other was going to react. You don't think, so you don't think John Terry's Portuguese lessons were super good? I, 
I think maybe it was just less, it was easier to become telepathic than it was to teach John Terry Portuguese. I a thousand percent agree with you. <laughs> Your fullbacks are William Gallas, the more defensive version, Wayne Bridge, the more attacking version, and then in the later years, Ashley Cole. But actually, mm-hmm. in this dominant period, it's those two, right? It's Gallas and Bridge. Um, Your right bracket. You have, have right Paulo Ferreira in there on occasion, but yeah, generally speaking, I, I would say probably Gallas and Bridge over others. And then Paulo Ferreira is the right-back, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Portuguese right-back that uh, Mourinho brings with him. The midfield three is really, really important. Makelele has that position named after him, Mm -hmm. right? That defensive midfielder position. Lampard is just ahead of him. And then the other slot, in the first season, it's a mix of people, right? It's Thiago, Jarosic, Schmertin. Sometimes it's Gudjansson in sort of a double attacking role with Lampard. But the second season, they buy Michael Essien, and it is the perfect midfield three. It really it's is. Makaleli doing the defending, Lampard doing all the connecting with his passes and late arriving uh, like with shots from the top of the box. And it's Michael Essien just going box to box and destroying people. That is, it is a fearsome midfield. It is. Um, the front three... Sorry, I know I'm talking about Taylor. No, I'm go just going to move go us through the whole team. Um, it's uh, Didier Drogba is the centre forward. Sometimes good Johnson, but Didier Drogba is the, the name we all remember. And then the wingers are Duff and Robin, Damien Duff and Ian Robin, and sometimes Joe Cole uh, pitching in when Ian Robin's hamstrings are inevitably injured. That's the <laughs> middle season, 2005-2006. That's when Joe Cole, I think, I believe becomes like the more out-and-out starter. It's Joe Cole and Ian Robin. And that is, like, it's easy again to remember Joe Cole now. Like, you and I saw him playing for Tampa Bay. He looked pretty out of shape and like he wasn't necessarily enjoying the southern heat uh yeah. but this is joe cole who i like too, too much bay too much bay yes yes exactly <laughs> but in the in these games in this era watching him he is just a beast like he is strong and fast and has that low center of gravity and will knock people over but outrun you but has the technical ability i kind of completely forgot how good joe cole was so this this joe cole i think it's really important to note what jose Mourinho did to joe cole because before that joe cole was like a languid number 10 creative guy who you know just wanted to like wander around get the ball and try and make something happen right Jose Mourinho came in and he made this Chelsea team just extra extra competitive by focusing on every single detail like you said like not a piece of lint on his suit mm-hmm. um apparently I, I, uh, I saw a couple of interviews like Wayne Bridge and someone else about how the minute Mourinho came in it was all about everything being perfect all the time the attention to detail was immaculate and terrifying and one of those those things is teaching those attacking wingers to track back and work hard mm-hmm. including joe cole who had never done that before yeah which is a thing that uh like Mourinho, he talks a lot about it uh, i think around this time is the idea that english players aren't uh multifunctional players that yeah. they, they're basically taught if you're going to be a striker go play striker and, and i think it was my uh jonathan wilson again talking or maybe michael cox talking about how like that was a limitation with michael owen that he was essentially like go hang on the shoulder run in behind you're really really fast and when he had to kind of uh, get a little bit more variety to his game, that's where you see Michael Owen kind of not have the success plus injuries. Whereas this team, yeah, to your point, Jose Mourinho assembles, it is people who are doing specific things, but he's getting them to do different specific things. And that extends yeah. to the one we always point to is like Semuleto playing a couple different positions at Inter Milan. But that idea starts here with Chelsea, where he kind of puts people in in different areas, but is able to get the best out of them because of the level and intensiveness of his coaching. So I want to close at least my, my little sure. uh, thoughts on Chelsea with a quote from Mourinho that I saw on the coachesvoice.com. He essentially said, the reason we were so good is that we had multiple ways of attacking teams. So if teams came with a low block, we could put crosses into Drogba or we could have Lampard shoot from the top of the box or we could win set pieces. And here's the important part. We could send in the Giants. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember thinking, well, I don't really remember that. I remember like Drogba's good in the air and Terry's good in the air. 
But I went and looked and realized that this is a classic Mourinho thing. Mm-hmm. His fullbacks were tall. Do you remember we used to like think about why is he playing Ivanovic right back in the later oh, days? Yeah. Even in the early days, Paolo Ferreira, the right back, is six foot. William Gallas, the left back, who, you know, also played centre back, is six foot. Mm-hmm. And you've got Terry and Cavallo, who are, you know, centre back tall. So he's already got four big guys at the back that he can send forward to attack set pieces. And that was a big reason that Chelsea was so good in the in these few years, is they kept winning kept scoring goals on set pieces essentially. And even like I would say, I would guess that Frank Lampard is probably around six foot tall, probably Michael Essien the same, or maybe like six one. That might just be because I think Michael Essien is a giant. He may well be like five foot five. But I'll, yeah. I would be willing to bet Essien's one of those players who's not that tall, but is just so imposing that you that I think be. he's like eight feet tall. That could be. But Lampard, I would say, is around six feet tall. So, like, even there, you you do have, like, a decent amount of height. You don't have that, like, your central midfield th- three are all five foot seven. And everyone yeah. else around them is tall, but maybe you're going to have a little bit of an aerial problem there. Yep. So, yeah. Um, what, the other thing I know, worth noting mm-hmm. about this team is they have a reputation for being defensive. Yep. I would mostly call them counter-attacking. Agreed. It's not as if they like sat everybody really deep. They were just really hard to break down, not least because they had Makaleli running around, screening everything, winning the balls. And then they could counter-attack and they could destroy you with Robin, young Aaron Robin, and Damian Duff with the, the pace on the wings and Lampard coming through from midfield. It, that, that stuff was terrifying. Yeah, I mean, that, that first season, they win the league title, first one in 50 years. They win the League Cup, uh, beating Liverpool. But then you look at some of like the records they got. They got, uh, I think, the most away wins, the most clean sheets, and the fewest goals conceded. And I think that's where a lot of that kind of their, their defensive ability like like stands out to people and that's what people remember but yeah. a, a key aspect i think of this chelsea team is that they can sit and then play on that counter and hit you on the break but then once they have done that they are equally capable of possessing the ball and causing you problems and they yeah. will tear you apart as you try to get that equalizer i went back and watched some of those man united games where they went like where man united lose three nil or three one and it's a lot of that of they get caught for that first goal and then they get exposed a couple more times one thing I really noticed watching footage is Makaleli not just doing the defensive job, but really being involved in the build-up and the passing and always being available to get the ball off of his defenders, mm-hmm. which I know is a really simple thing, but it means he's not just some dummy who's sitting there waiting to make tackles, right? He is really involved in what Chelsea are doing when they're possessing the ball. I basically have a new appreciation for Makaleli after watching, uh, watching some footage. Which is impressive because I feel like you already had a pretty strong appreciation yeah. for Makaleli. For both sides of his game now. Uh, um, and Oh, to, just to put some numbers on what you mentioned, uh, I believe it was 15 goals they conceded in 38 yep. Premier League games in that first season. Mm-hmm. 25 clean sheets yep. in 38 games. That is crazy. It is. It is. It, except that, like, we should remember, uh, like... If you're looking at the numbers, the transfer numbers of the time, it doesn't look that ridiculous because now, like, I think the first season before uh, Mourinho comes in when it's still Ranieri, they spend 120 million uh, pounds that first uh, year. But, like, that's, you know, that's one player these days. But at the time, that's an insane amount of money. And they did sort of, it's interesting to look at that team when Ranieri's still there. They bring in all of these players some of whom just do not ever have an impact. Juan Sebastian Verón, Hernan Crespo, like they get some time under Mourinho, but yeah. they're sort of not afraid to be like, okay, that didn't work. Let's bring in four more people, and they keep kind of doing that and keep strengthening. Well, they, Michael Essien doesn't come until uh, Mourinho's second season, yeah. but like he's already had a bunch of other midfield options in there prior to that. Well, I think until Shevchenko's arrival, yeah. um, this was very much like Mourinho was fully allowed to do whatever he wanted with the players that yeah. were there. And if that meant just ditching Varane or ditching or not playing Crespo very much, then that was fine because Mourinho's plan was going to work. And he had the evidence to show that it worked, right? Because he won the Premier League 
back to back. Yeah. Um, all right, are you ready for this matchup? Um, I are wanted you? to say one more thing, just because we've kind of gone short on Didier Drogba, and I just want to remind everyone that Didier Drogba stopped a civil war. <laughs> like, I just remember at the time being like, well, that's just insane. And that guy... I always go to he, him shooting from, like, two yards from the end line and the commentator, one commentator saying, like, well, he was never going to score from there. And the other one saying, like, well, it's Didier Drogba. He might. <laughs> and I just remember, like, <laughs> he was that that intimidating of a player. And for me, an American fan of Manchester United, this was the first team that people hated more than Manchester United. Like, in that, like it really was like, okay, people hate Chelsea more. That's fine. Um, but also... they were relentless. They were horrible to play against. Yes, they right. really, really were. But with that said... I do have them losing this game against Santos. Okay, tell me why. And I think it's partially because they never won. The best way I can explain it is like Chelsea never won that necessary second game. In 2004, 2005, they lose uh, Champions League semifinal to Liverpool on aggregate in the knockout round to Barcelona in 2005 and 2006. In 2006, 2007, they lose the league to Manchester United. They're in for the quadruple until May with League Cup, FA Cup, Premier League, Champions League. Instead, they only do the cup double, which is still impressive. But you kind of want those very iconic teams, those very successful teams to have that. Like they won the Champions league and the premier league that season and were completely just this force of nature i think chelsea in a lot of ways were a force of nature in the premier league but that lack of like diversity outside of england is where i kind of knock them a little bit okay i also have santos winning okay but i've thought more about how the matchup goes down on the field all right let's do it um and i really think about like the strength of chelsea for example is the cavallo terry partnership which we talked about earlier and also according to Mourinho the Makaleli one-man advantage in midfield. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's worth remembering that when he came in to, uh, to Chelsea, most English teams were playing some variation of like a 4-4-2 or a 4-4-1-1. Chelsea consistently had three central midfielders and one of them was Makaleli. So one of Mourinho's things is, it's actually pretty simple. I was always going to win every game because yeah. I've always got the one-man advantage, right? So to begin with, I looked at this and thought, oh, maybe... maybe Chelsea have the one-man advantage because Santos only have Zito and Mengalvio in central midfield. But then the thing you talked about with Mauro stepping out to join the midfield and Pele dropping back to join the midfield, suddenly it's Santos that has the one-man numerical advantage mm-hmm. over Chelsea in central midfield, right? So they can, they can make that work. And then going forward, it essentially comes down to, again, Cavallo and Terry versus Pepe and Coutinho, Right. And I understand and I appreciate the Cavallo and Terry partnership and how they had this great link-up. But I honestly think there's no rival to the Pelé-Coutinho partnership because they spent so many Mm -hmm. years playing together that whatever telepathy Cavallo thought he had, Pelé and Coutinho (laughs) had it many, many years over from a much younger age and they both speak the same language. And one of them is Pelé, the greatest player of all time. Yep. (laughs) And that's the tiebreaker. It's, a, it's going to be a lot of Portuguese spoken in this game. That's for sure. Especially, I think Mourinho brings in like five Portuguese players. There's already some Brazilians in there. So you're going to get a lot of Portuguese. So maybe that negates that sort of ability to speak a different language. And maybe they'll be able to kind of understand what each other's saying. But you're right, though, that you still won't have, even if Carvalho can understand what's happening, he won't then be able to effectively communicate it to John Terry. So that's going to be a problem <laughs> right there for sure. I mean, I don't really mean it so much as a language thing, but I essentially just think the relationship between Pelé and Coutinho and one of them being Pelé mm-hmm. is too much for Cavallo and Terry to handle. Like, I'm a big fan of John Terry. Um, like, you know, I think he's an impressive footballer, but he is not as an impressive footballer as Pele. Mm-hmm. No. So I could see a lot of Pele lifting the ball over John Terry's head and then smashing it past Petr Cech. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you on that. And and I would add that like this is a Pele who I, I think uh, from what I saw was playing an average of 100 games a year because Santos are doing all these exhibitions. And in those exhibitions, even though they're quote-unquote friendlies, it's teams that want to beat Santos. So he's getting kicked and hacked. I think he's playing a total of like 1,300 games in 11 years, which is an insane amount of – but you look at how many games he was able to play and how much kicking and physicality happened, and he's still scoring goals. And I don't really know how Chelsea deal with him because – He's been kicked. He's been knocked around. He's been double marked and triple marked. And, and it still is that conundrum of like, how do you deal with this once in a lifetime, once in an ever sort of player? Yeah. And I don't know how you shut him down without completely overly focusing on him. And then as we've already established, there's this core of 10 world-class Brazilians who are equally capable of being very, very good. Maybe not quite equally capable, but you get my point that they're yeah. still going to be able to find a way through if you're committing six players to Pele. All right, so we're giving this to Santos, right? Santos are going I'm surprised. through. Uh, Mourinho's Chelsea. I'm, I'm not. The more I learned about Santos, the more I understood that it wasn't just Pele yeah, and, 10, and 10 guys to back him up. Um, I really have a lot of respect for this team. Um, so, yeah, Santos are going through. Um, up next, it's Ancelotti's Milan versus Maradona's Napoli. But first, I mean, for a tournament like this, Taylor, yeah. you've got, you got to be dressed well, right? Yeah, I think you we're can't... requiring that all managers involved be wearing uh, a tuxedo or a suit from the Black Tux, which is today's sponsor. Is that fair? It certainly is. And if they want to order, they can just go to theblackturks.com, today's sponsor, where there's an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you, mm -hmm. even if you're playing in 1962. Uh, yeah, and, and they have probably a lot of different styles that would maybe be familiar to you if you're 1962. Maybe like there's some overlap in the fashion trends. So you might be like, oh, yeah, that, that's kind of what I would have worn in 1962. Let's go with that. But if not, you can yeah. try something else different because they have... Fashion is cyclical. Yeah, exactly. They have so many styles and uh, cuts and different approaches to suits and tuxedos that you can certainly find something f that you will want regardless of what time period you happen to be living in. And if you don't know your size, then one, I mean, you really should know your size, but if you, if you don't have a tape measure and you don't know your size, you can use the find my fit option. Um, the blacktux.com won't, won't shame you for not knowing your size like I just did. Um, and you answer some basic questions like your height, your weight, your shoulder size, things like that. And the blacktux.com will show you the options you have. Even Taylor Rockwell could find a suit for Michael Essien um, on the blacktux.com. <laughs> Uh, it, it might be six sizes too large because I've decided he's seven feet tall. But yes, you could do that because you could probably you probably could do that because they've made the kind of uh, the estimation process that much easier that I feel like I could take some looks at Michael uh, Michael Essien and maybe just like some guesses from Internet research and put together yeah. a, a size for him that would be appropriate. But if it weren't, he could try it on, make sure it did fit. And if it didn't, then he could send it back with some and like he could get the adjustments he needs and the remeasuring that needed to be done so that it will end up fitting him perfectly. And then all is wonderful. So I'm sure Michael Essien has plenty of money and could afford to pay full price. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have Michael Essien money and you would like to get 10% off, um, you can go to theblacktux.com and get 10% off with the code SOCCER. That's theblacktux.com code SOCCER for 10% off your purchase. Give me the tagline, Taylor. Give me that tagline. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment, even if that moment is uh, a time-traveling soccer tournament. Uh, for Michael Essien, it's going to be awkward when I, when I send in a form that just says like he's called the bison so make it fit like a bison does that work is that allowed <laughs> let's hope they're soccer fans when, yeah. when they get that request <laughs> all right the next game mm -hmm. coming up it's Ancelotti's Milan versus Maradona's Napoli Taylor are you okay for time yes I think so okay all right let's start with Ancelotti's Milan are at home here right 
Uh, they the are team. indeed. Before we get to these two teams, though, Daryl, though we do have kind of time constraints, I wanted to ask you, it would have applied to the last game. It feels much more relevant this time. One thing we haven't discussed, what do we do with the back pass rule? What rule are we playing with here? Flip a coin before the game starts. Okay, so because I did see Napoli utilizing that one a lot to get out of defensive pressure of like quickly pass it back to the goalkeeper and he can pick it up and now we're okay. Uh, and I do feel like maybe that is going to factor into some of my considerations here. But let's start with Milan, who will be at home. AC Milan from 2003 to 2007. So this is Ancelotti's Milan when Carlo Ancelotti was managing this team. Um, it's got a few variations, but it's also got a lot of core players. And that's why I've sort of, I, I felt like we could... Uh, like combine these all together into Ancelotti's Mm -hmm. Milan. This is a team that wins the Champions League in 2003, loses famously to Liverpool in 2005 Champions League final after being 3-0 up, which apparently mentally destroyed them. Mm -hmm. But then they rebuild, come back and beat Liverpool again. Or sorry, beat Liverpool, get their revenge in 2007. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the story um, of this team. They also win Serie A somewhere in the middle there around 2004. Somewhere in the middle of that. I believe. I'm going to give you the quick tactical breakdown. I know there's a lot of stories with this team as well, Taylor, but I want to give a quick sort of lineup. Ancelotti went with a 4-3-1-2, at least to begin with. And the key players you need to know, Dida in goal, uh, Brazilian, Paolo Maldini at left back. Um, so the 1990s were peak Maldini. The 2000s were how is he still so good, mm-hmm. Maldini. So Maldini, still athletic, can still read the game, still like an unbeatable competitor. He still got it um, in the 2000s. Um, the centre-backs are mostly Nesta, Alessandro Nesta, who's got sort of, he's got the brutal, will tear you apart type uh, mentality, but he's also got the grace and intelligence. Um, he's got, got a good balance of the two types of defending. And then he's partnered with Costa Curta or later Yapsta who are a bit more bit more bruisery and then taylor's favorite at right back it's kafu mm-hmm. i mean it, it is it is definitely going to be kafu i had a couple of different options there i would also add there i, I saw maldini how can you have options it's kafu it, it, Come is. On, it is but i had I, I was more confused because i saw a lot of different uh, places and like lineup generators listing maldini as the center back in the 2001 and 2007 uh, Champions League finals, which threw me a little bit as like a Nesta Maldini pairing, and then Yapstam comes in in the middle in 2005. I mean, it's, I think they did they did mix it around mm-hmm. a little bit. So I'm, yeah. basically, I was keeping it simple by giving the sort of gotcha. classic. Okay, cool, cool, so, cool, yeah. cool, cool. All right, so I'm go with, you with me on this, and let's praise Kafu because I think people might have forgotten Kafu. I mean. You could forget him because he's so fast that you might not have seen him there, and so you didn't even realize he was there. But yeah, Who's like, that blurry guy? Who's that blurry guy? I mean, a lot of this is based on that 2005 Champions League final where, yes, Liverpool are able to come back. But in that game, it was Cafu that I found the most impressive player, I think, on the entire field. Just that even at that advanced age at that time period, he is still one of the fastest people that I saw and yes. is just constantly up and down, one of the fittest players. It's amazing to watch how good he was on the ball. And he really is that, like, like you could have put him into that Pep Guardiola-Barcelona team and he would have been just fine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's a bit like Danny Alves, right? Yes. Except maybe faster. He's got yeah. the same sort of um, yeah. competitiveness. He's got the same level of, he's got tricks, right? The man's got skills, like quick one-twos, but he can also do a few soul rolls and cutbacks and cuts and like really embarrass you. There's, I think there's a video of him like juggling it over three different players' heads. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he's also got just unstoppable pace, like an express train going down the right. So Kafu is really, really important. Yep. But maybe even more important is this midfield. Mm-hmm. So the big Ancelotti innovation was to look at Andrea Perlo attacking midfielder and say, how about we sit you deep and you become a deep-lying playmaker? And in a 4-3-1-2, I'm going to put you in the middle and I'm going to surround you with 
Gennaro Gattuso on your right, who just bucks to bucks, bucks to bucks, crunch and tackle, will happily destroy people. Um, and to your left, we're going to put Clarence Seydorf, who is kind of a number 10, but has such a high work rate and is so sort of um, effective and efficient that we, we can play him as like a left center mid shuttler type guy. And then ahead of those three, we're going to have first Rui Costa and then later Kaká at the tip of the attack. And then ahead of those guys, it's Shevchenko, who we all know about, and Pippo Inzaghi, who was born offside. <laughs> he was. I love that quote so much. Um, did, and I did, like, I tried to create, like, a final starting 11, and it, it did end up being Shevchenko and Inzaghi over Crespo, even though Crespo was so yeah. good in that 2005 final. Um, I wanted to go back to Pirlo, though, for a moment uh, yeah, yeah. in talking about this lineup. So you talk about how he had this idea to pull him back and have him be this deep-lying playmaker. One thing I didn't read... And maybe it's very obvious, but I'm, I'm wondering if you have an idea. Is like, what was the issue with Pirlo? Is it that he wasn't fast enough to be a number 10? Or like, what do you think it was that made this such like a revolutionary, revelatory sort of decision for Menchalati? It's because there are already other number 10s in the team, mm-hmm. right? Clarence Seidorf is a number 10. I think he literally wears number 10 or wore number 10 for a long time uh, for Milan. He is a creative midfielder but he can run up and down. So he's also been repositioned by Ancelotti here into like mm-hmm. a left center mid shuttler. And then first Rui Costa and then Kaká are also number 10s. So there's literally not room in the starting lineup at number 10 for Andrea Perlo. Yeah. But instead, okay. of just ben- instead of just benching him, um, Ancelotti pulls him back and says, if I'm going to surround you with the hard work of Seydorf and the hard work and tenacious tackling of uh, Reno Gattuso, who, you know, let's not underrate him. This is one of the best defensive midfielders of all time. Um, then we can afford to have Perlo sit in the middle and spray passes around. And, and in, in terms of him sitting in the middle spraying those passes around, the adjective that I feel like applies most in my mind to Perlo is unflappable. How do you feel about that? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. A great. A, a, if you're using modern parlance, mm-hmm. it would be like great ball retention, right? You yeah. can pressure him and he can just step away from you and then he can find that pass. And also Penenka's, Daryl. And also Penenka's. Sometimes also that doesn't Penenka's. work. He definitely misses one on one occasion, <laughs> but uh, it mostly works. <laughs> um, then the other one, the one big thing that Ancelotti did is when Shevchenko was sold, um, instead of replacing him with an, another expensive, pacey striker, um, what... Ancelotti did is realize that Seydorf was getting on a little bit mm-hmm. and took away the defensive duties from him, uh, pushed him farther forward and played the famous Christmas tree formation of 4-3-2-1. Mm-hmm. So it was three sort of defensive midfielders, although one of them was Perlo. Then it was Kaká and Seydorf underneath Pippo and Zaghi. So it's this magnificent reshuffling of this team that like got another good few years out of it and got another Champions League title out of them. I mean, th- that's not bad. They get their revenge. They get their vengeance in 2007. And it is yes. uh, in Zaghi, I believe, both times in 2007. Uh, for the first one, the one that, like, I think Pirlo hits a free kick and it bangs off of Inzaghi and goes in. Uh, the commentator that I saw, the Italian commentator, uh, I-, I just thought this was fitting with the born offside. But in this case, it's Inzaghi is there. Inzaghi is there. We don't know where. We don't know when. But people Inzaghi is always there. <laughs> <laughs> I believe born offside's a Ferguson quote. It is. Right? Yeah. The lad was um, born offside. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that made me think of him as like just some scrappy, like horrible goal finisher. Mm-hmm. But the more I see his goals, he has this incredible touch where he does like break off side traps, but then he's got this touch that kills things dead. Mm-hmm. And then he always took keepers by surprise. I saw so many like weird near post finishes or like smashes into the top corner and keepers are just like, oh, that's what you went with? Damn. <laughs> Does he remind you at all of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or is that just my yes. United loyalty? I mean, okay. I think I've seen less of Solskjaer than you have, mm-hmm. but yes. I think it's just this like player who I think of as being very, very good, but I would never say was this world class forward. Like Anzagi 
is world class, and yet simultaneously he would never be one of the ones I would think of as like the world's leading goal scorers at any particular I, moment. I honestly, I would say if he'd had fewer injuries, fewer yeah. knee injuries, mm-hmm. he'd have way more goals. Like yes. the reason he's not starting that 2005 Champions League final and it's Crespo and Shevchenko instead of Pippo Inzaghi and Shevchenko is because Inzaghi was injured with his knees. Mm-hmm. Okay, that yeah. makes sense to me. And Crespo yeah. still did just fine in that game. Yeah, he he yeah well for half oh, of it that finished that finished so good. <laughs> All right, so I've given my like tactical yeah. overview of Milan. It's a team I'm really excited about because it manages to squeeze loads of number 10s into one team and get the best out of Perlo and the best out of all kinds of players. Um, but there's a lot of backstory with this team. There right? really a lot is. of um, off-the-field stuff going on. I think that's worth talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Because going into this, it, it sort of felt like it was going to be like, my idea of this was AC Milano, this kind of stable juggernaut, whereas Napoli were this chaotic uh, like force that somehow managed to get everything together for a couple of years. And in reality, Milan at this time period had a lot of drama on and off the field, but especially off the field. You have Berlusconi took over the club in 86, served as prime minister three different times. He's prime minister during this era from 2001 to 2006, uh, and it's not going well. Like The Italian economy is essentially about to collapse, uh, but he is protecting his own interests, which is where Milan becomes very unpopular. But you have the Nandrolone uh, scandal where you have players testing positive for performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, there's a whole prolonged doping scandal that I think gets resolved in 2006, but then you also have Calciopoli, which is worth remembering Milan are involved in as well. So there's a ton of scandal surrounding this team. One of the reasons why they don't win the title in, I think, 2005-2006, they finished third with 58 points. They would have won the league, but they're docked 30 points. Otherwise, they would have gotten 88 and totally won. And it's partially why they don't maybe get remembered as much is because they don't have that domestic success because of something like Calciopoli. So what was their role in Calciopoli? Were they one of the teams like uh, like trading favors? Yes, I believe so. Not to the extent, obviously, of Juve and Fiorentina, who were both relegated. Lazio, I think, got a harsher penalty as well. But still, getting docked 30 points, yeah, it implies I think they had players involved and maybe some sort of larger organizational structure involved. So when we're judging this team and we're going to send them up against Maradona's mm-hmm. Napoli, does that all that stuff count in their favor? Because we're saying they probably would have had more titles if not for all this off the field stuff, or does it count against them? It's honestly, it, it's it's really tough. I would kind of go with whatever you think because <laughs> I think I tend to get too caught up in off the field stuff, and obviously you have focused on the more tactical side of things. But like, I I think at least to me it factors in the sense that I considered them to be a more stable club, kind of completely forgetting about Silvio Berlusconi and everything else. So it does then make me feel like, well, now it's like a sort of chaotic team playing a sort of chaotic team, and then we might have the case of, is Diego Maradona enough to maybe send Napoli through? <laughs> that That's going to be a very uh, big factor as we get to Napoli. But Daryl, where are you on this right now? I think it's a things can be two things okay. thing. Now I've asked you the question, right? Mm. Like, I'm, I don't know who was, which players were implicated in the Nandrolone scandal, for example. Was it anyone who was really important in this time? I think they eventually get cleared, uh, Milan do in like 2006, but there is just these persistent allegations that it's, it's Nandrolone, it's other banned substances, there's blood doping, what have you. Yeah. Nothing I remember the stuff proven, about the, the Milan yeah. lab. Yeah, the rumor, right? but the do you remember how there was that like a couple year period where we were like, how are they doing this? Like they keep yeah. just managing to get 36 year olds to play like 26 year olds. And and in retrospect, it feels sort of like Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. Like, how are they doing this? What could possibly be going on? <laughs> it, it, some dots are connected, I guess. So maybe it's that then that if there were that level of performance enhancement, that maybe that did then literally enhance their performance. If you remove that, maybe that performance dips just a little bit. 
but it was never proven, right? So Correct. we can't say for sure. Mm-hmm. My, my closing thought on Milan then is the reason I love them so much, I love watching this team and re-watching this team, is the fact that he gets so many creative players into yeah. central midfield, mm-hmm. but manages to get hard-working creative players. Because even Kaká would run hard, right? Apart from that one Shingard incident. Um, Seidorf mm-hmm. would run hard. Gattuso runs hard. Polo does his thing. And then even with all those creative players, normally you can only afford one striker. And Milan, went with, for the most part, went with two strikers, yeah. um, as well as all these creative midfielders. Because they had, in one sense, because they had Carfu at right back, it let them do all that give all the width from just this one uh, relentless fullback. I mean, so it, really, one of the it really is, that. like, I guess if you're going weak link, it's Dida. Like that, that, and, and even then, like, that's not to disparage Dida. It's just at every position. Like, at their height, you could go Cafu, Nesta, Stam, Maldini. I mean, that's, that will win the Champions League most times. Gattuso, Pirlo, Sedorf, to your point, yeah. And then Kaká, Shevchenko, Inzaghi, Crespo. Like, yeah, that's world class across the, across the table. So maybe it is just goalkeeper. Maybe they strengthen a little bit more. They win some penalty shootouts things look a little different. I, can't, I actually don't know enough about Dida to say either way, but I'm going to guess if Buffon was in goal for them, for example. Uh, yeah, maybe, that'd be fine. Maybe be it's fine. an upgrade. Right? <laughs> All right, before we do run out of time, mm-hmm. Taylor, let me, let me know if you're running out of time. Let's talk about Maradona's Napoli, which it. is essentially 86 to 90. Mm-hmm. It's when they win two Scudettos, Italian championships with Diego Maradona. Uh, they win a Coppa Italia and they win the UEFA Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, the coach was uh, Bianchi, but he seems less important than Diego Maradona in many ways. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's essentially just that he is the perfect marriage of like rigid Italian defensive practices that basically let Maradona kind of do what he wants and that Bianchi was okay with giving Maradona that level of freedom. Like that's yeah. kind of his most important contribution in my mind. And worth noting, I think he leaves in 89. So then it's uh, yeah. be gone for the final two seasons there. He's sort of forced out by yeah. Maradona and some mm-hmm. other players, right? They fall out with him for some crazy reason, like not realizing that this is the most successful Napoli's ever been. And by the way, Diego, this is the best you're ever going to play. Yeah, well, then <laughs> so, Maradona kind of gets forced out as well. So <laughs> it all kind of works together. Let's talk about this peak Diego Maradona era, sure. right? So he joins before the 86 World Cup, right? Mm-hmm. The season before. And I think they finished. Yeah. Oh, 84, right? Mm-hmm. And he has a couple of decent years. After the 86 World Cup, it seems to me that Napoli strengthen and Napoli strengthen. And eventually they're in a position where Maradona can absolutely run wild yeah. and win games. So I yeah. want to talk first, the way we talked about Pele, what was it that makes Diego Maradona so good during this era? Um, it is, first of all, like not to buy myself time, but a little bit selling, I guess, is just that like it's tough to say because you watch him and like there's he on the surface is this like very, very little guy who gets knocked around a lot. You don't expect him to be this like physical force, but it's it's the we talked about this, I think, when we did the 101 about Maradona, like they're just sort of like dancing chaotic energy that he brings. But like, yeah, combined with the ball control of a seal, <laughs> like it's it's just <laughs> he is so good on the ball and so capable of making the ball do exactly what he wants to, like, the millimeter, that he's just, he brings this dribbling precision that looks very, like, salsa-esque. It looks very flamboyant, but there is this kind of, like, technical precision to it that makes it stand out that much more. Okay, yeah, I think I've got a way to describe it. When he is dribbling at you, Maradona, Mm. first of all, is capable of going very, very fast with the ball when he's dribbling at you. He's very left-footed, but to me, it always looks like he's taking more touches per second than the average player. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of yep. very quick manipulations of the ball, and uh, coupled with you know his sort of shifts in body weight, left and right, 
it always felt to me like defenders never knew which way he was going to go because he could shift so quickly in any direction. And because of those extra touches, he could manipulate the ball so quickly in any direction yep. that he was literally impossible to stop him going around you. Like, yeah. Ask the England team of 86. Yeah. Ask all these Italian defenders of this time. There is so much of like Maradona going past people because he's got all of that. And then the thing I would, this is to, to uh, piggyback on anything you were saying just, the thing I remember in that Diego Maradona HBO documentary is that he said for the first two years or so, he didn't know how to handle getting kicked around mm-hmm. in Serie A, like getting like the physical battle. He would, he would eventually sort of lose because he would just be beaten into the ground. And essentially, I don't, he, he never says specifically what he does, if it's like he bulks up or whatever, but he figures out a way to ride those challenges or at least to not let them throw him off his game. And suddenly the fouls that are being visited on him for, for him dribbling at people, he either like brushes himself off and just goes at them again, or he physically rides them and keeps going. And I think it's when he figures that out that it's like Maradona think, is unleashed because he's genuinely unstoppable at that point. Whereas before you could hack him down. I mean, I feel like may- maybe you've had this experience in a game. I-, I feel like I have of that. Like, okay, like that's how it's going to be. Like if the referee yeah. just isn't going to call it at a certain point in a game, you will be like, all right, fine. Like I know I can get away with, I know what they can get away with. So I'm going to anticipate that a little bit more. And I do imagine that if you extend that to an entire league and yet in every game, you keep expecting the referee to make that call and it doesn't happen. Eventually you're going to be like, okay, that's how the league is going to be. Okay. Well then I'll play accordingly. (laughs) And maybe the best way to visualize it is a horrible, like ankle breaking slide tackle coming in. But if you're Diego Maradona and you've learned to expect that horrible ankle breaking slide tackle, then you just like, pop the ball up in the air and jump over it and keep going. Yeah. Whereas yeah. before you would have got taken out. And I, I, I that's, also like an image, that's an image I've got in my head from that documentary. I have, I have another image I want to get to from that documentary as well. But I also imagine like from everything I have heard and seen of Diego Maradona, that he is very much uh, an FU type of player that like, if yeah. you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to do something. And with that, I'm going to guess comes that machismo. You didn't hurt me. I'm not hurt. And so even if he did have like a broken leg, I feel like he's popping right back up and going to continue <laughs> to try to play and pretend like it wasn't an issue. Yes. The thing that I would say in terms of like visualizing Maradona, like imagine what the imagine the body posture of a person who you say has a Napoleon complex, and that's Diego Maradona. Like it is <laughs> a shorter guy who's like really dribbles as though his chest is just like puffed out. It's a really yeah. strange way of like he has his chest fully puffed out, but then he runs, but it doesn't. It's like look he's wearing. Awkward. It's like he's wearing a wonder bra. It really is. <laughs> Like his pectoral, oh, I'm I'm kind of joking, but I'm also serious. It's like his pectoral muscles are pushed up and outwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really. Yeah, it's like he, yeah, he's built out. It's it's a strange it's a strange look. It's, it's a little bit gimly, I guess, in that way. <laughs> but yeah, man, Diego Maradona, very very good. But I want to emphasize a point that you made of like he comes in in '84, and I almost would like sort of draw the comparison to David Beckham signing for the LA Galaxy, which is probably a bit ridiculous. But it's like if Beckham had been in his prime or approaching his prime, and it's those first seasons, like we remember of like, oh, we haven't won anything. The Beckham experiment comes out. He's not really used to the physicality. He's dealing with injuries. And then they kind of start surrounding him with like more role players from the domestic league, but then also some kind of star caliber players. Yeah, and Robbie then Keith. eventually, what's that? Yeah, Robbie yeah, Roy Keane, obviously the globally. Oh, yeah, right, of course. Did I say Roy? Yeah. Oops. Yeah, so it's basically Robbie Keane, Landon Donovan are the two that I think of as like paired with David Beckham. Pretty, pretty good. But then it's Juninho and everybody else. We don't need to go deep on L.A. But from, for this Napoli team, starting in 84 with Maradona, you have uh, Carnavale and Di Napoli coming in 86, Careca in 87, Alamao in 88, Luca Fusi in 88 as well. And you just see this team slowly getting better and better so that by the time you have that, like, 89 UEFA Cup by that 1990 uh, Scudetto, these people that they slowly reinforce with become key members of the team. You don't have 
have a lot of people coming in and then getting shipped out a season or two later. It seems like you add somebody, they become a core performer until this all falls apart. So unlike Santos, where it's genuinely mm-hmm. like top, top world-class level players plus Pelé, it's not quite at that level, no. right? This isn't like the all-stars plus the greatest player, Maradona, but it's like really talented really effective players mm-hmm. plus Maradona, right? They're all doing a really important job and some of them are very, very famous in their own right. Um, I'm going to quickly go through the team if you'll forgive me, Taylor, and mm-hmm. like, do the quick tactical setup. But because this changes so much, there are like, yeah. players in and out over the years, we're going to keep it somewhat vague, but just to give people an idea of the shape of the team. I'm, I'm pulling up my various Napoli formations I have in my notes <laughs> to, okay. to go with you. Yeah, go ahead. I am going to say that the classic Napoli formation is a 4-3-1-2, yep. but with one of the strikers drifting to the left. And the classic lineup I'm going to go with for the strikers is Careca, the great Brazilian striker, as the number nine, and then Carnavale, the Italian striker, as the left-sided striker who ends up going to the left wing, right? So that's, how, that's to me how the forward line, the classic forward line looks. And then you have essentially a midfield three, um, the guy I would always include is De Napoli because I think it's magnificent. There's a guy called De Napoli who's playing for Napoli. Yep. Um, Alemao, who you just mentioned, who's mm-hmm. kind of like a good box-to-box technical player, can do a bit of everything, right? And then there are a couple of different defensive midfielders. I think it's Bagni sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's Fusi. Uh, but these are the guys that sit right in the middle. Um, the back four, the two guys that I think are really worth calling out are... Alessandro Renica, mm-hmm. who's the sweeper, who I was really, I'd never heard of him, really, really impressed yep. with him. He, I saw him step out and make things happen. It's a guy I'm really impressed with. And then the more famous guy is Chiro Ferrara. Yeah. Another guy who's from Napoli, so it's a big, big deal. Uh, but like really, really good with the ball, but also really good at stepping out and, and winning things. So for, Chiro Ferrara goes on to have a great career with Juventus as well, but also, also here with Napoli. And I love that uh, De Napoli and uh, Chiro Ferrara are from the area because this is a big, big deal for like this, like Naples pride that, mm-hmm. re- that this team really is, um, it like sucks it up as energy and then uses it to spit in the face of the rest of Serie A. Yeah, because we, we see that in the Maradona documentary. <laughs> I, want, I want you to appreciate my imagery there. I will, and I'm going to go with it for a moment because like you get a bit of it, as I said, in that documentary, but this is a time when like the north-south divide in Italy is maybe at its worst. Maybe it gets yeah. better, or like at its worst, maybe it gets a little bit worse in like the 2000s, but right around here is where you have a complete split and the south is looked upon as corrupt and it's it's a where like money gets wasted and they don't know what they're doing down there uh when napoli go up to play juventus that uh, i think is the 85 season uh you have the banners of welcome to italy which is telling right there and then uh help us dear vesuvius praying to a volcano to destroy naples uh Yeah. yeah it's a lot of antagonism and it definitely all gets kind of centered on napoli because they are this team that has a massive stadium has massive support has lots of wealthy benefactors and yet never really gets it together and so they for the longest time are seen as this club that like is representative of the wasteful south and then suddenly they've got the best player in the world and they're very good and they're winning things and just the way diego marandona's uh, psyche is constructed from what i understand he is the worst player in the world for all the opposition teams and cities to be hurling insults at. Yes, because it just fuels him. It's like mm-hmm. the it's like the Black Panther suit. Like every time you hit it, it, it stores up energy and it's re- ready to unleash later on. Yeah, I mean, in that way, I would argue that this is really like a a sort of perfect timing across the board situation because you have Maradona struggling at Barcelona. Uh, like I guess unknown at the time is that he's dealing with hepatitis, but then publicly is dealing with a very bad injury that almost. 
like broke his leg and kept him out for even longer. But he's coming into Napoli as this like, sort of failure, and he wants to prove himself. But then you also have Milan-Lazio relegated in 1980 after another scandal. You have Juventus beginning to kind of suffer a turn in form. Trapattoni leaves uh, for Inter Milan in 1986, and you've got this kind of tumult, this lack of consistency in Serie A, and into that steps Diego Maradona, who wants to prove himself and feels like he has a point to prove, and moves to this club who feel like they have a point to prove and feel like they've been constantly yeah. maligned. And you kind of see how it all comes together into this force for, oh, you think we can't win? Well, we're going to destroy you. Yeah, it's perfect timing for really all involved, is. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, final tactical thing I would say is um, the partnership of Kareka and Maradona, I think, is very important. Yes. Because every time I see Maradona dribbling at a defense, Kareka is ahead of him, either available for a one-two or more often sort of threatening to run in behind. So Maradona often has the 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 option to just play Kareka in, right? Mm. It's good that it's not always Maradona has to dribble until he runs into a dead end. The man has options, right? He does. He often has he often has Kareka, and then also he has Carnavale out on the left, at least like providing some width for this team as well. And I'm, and I'm really, I'm not trying to disparage like Santos or anything again, but like there would be those games where they would win 3-0 and you would look and it would be like, oh, it's because Pele wasn't there. That's why he didn't score. Like if Pele's in that game, he's probably scoring. Whereas you get lots of games with Napoli where it's Diego Maradona plays 90 minutes, draws nine fouls, uh, but doesn't get any goals. But you watch that game and he is the one who's kind of driving everything, combining with everybody in a really, really strong way. But there are those players in Napoli who are more than capable of picking it up themselves if he is getting completely kicked out of a game and still finding a way to help that team win so it's maybe not to the level of Santos quite in my mind but especially that back four and then some of the relationships Maradona has I do think they've got a lot of strength there I'm going to call them cocaine Santos <laughs> I, I think that I, is fair one parallel I would draw is I think Santos in terms of the quality of the team made the mistake of after all the success of the early 60s they just kept going on more and more tours and it was really yeah. punishing and like Pele was really unhappy towards the end right yeah that would be that. some financial mismanagement for sure whereas Napoli um, after this period especially the early period of success, then, you know, Maradona gets involved with the mafia and the cocaine and it sort of goes down that Mm. way. It's two teams that like rise up to become dominant and then like make a mistake essentially. Yeah, it's it's like Maradona is a lot more Garincha than he is Pele, but then doesn't have the kind of, he holds off at least for a while the complete sort of self-destruction that we saw from Garincha. And so it is this like, imagine if Garincha... Were, were actually motivated by people saying stuff about him and kept kind of performing at that next level. That's basically what yep. you have in Diego Maradona. Oh, and by the way, just going back to Santos, Garincha is the only reason Dorval doesn't have a bunch of World Cup winners medals. Yes, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you feel at all, my final thing I wanted to mention on this one, did you feel at all like this was an Napoli team that could sort of compete in the modern era? Because I did. more, yeah. Maybe not like, like wildly successful, but com- compared to like the WM and the 4-2-4, even though we've talked about how Santos could probably make that work, here like you've got four very strong, defensively solid defenders who can also like play the ball, move forward. I felt like it was a lot of like accurate long balls, but then good short passes. You've got Diego Maradona. You've got that kind of 4-3 Diego 2 shape, but you've got two good forwards who can combine. And it felt like a team that would be okay. They reminded me a lot of Atalanta that might be just because Papu Gomez has that sort of Maradona freedom but <laughs> yeah. I could see this Napoli team being successful in this current era I, I agree um, but first let's see how they do against a team from 2003 to 2007 how about All that right. as a nice a nice stepping stone 
Um, all right, so we're putting Maradona's Napoli in the Bill and Ted machine. Mm-hmm. They're going back. They're go- they're going to the San Siro and they're playing Ancelotti's Milan. I would say they're going forward, but yes, they're going. For- they are. They're going in the future. <laughs> Sorry, I got. They're yeah. going the other way around. The long so way the- around. So this is more like Back to the Future uh, Part Two. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> so what happens, Taylor? I've got a few sort of tactical ideas about what might happen here. What What do you see happening first? Oh, of actually, I want to hear your tactical ideas. I want to hear the story of the game. I think the huge story of the game, and this just happens to match up, is that thing that we both noticed where Kareka would stay as a centre forward, Maradona had freedom underneath, mm-hmm. and first Giordano and then later Carnavale would essentially go and play left wing to give the team a weird width. I think that kills Milan because it pins Cafu back. Dude, sorry for interrupt or sorry for taking this. I've, I've been trying to figure out what... The, I was like, I've seen this Napoli team the way they play before. It's Dortmund currently. It's, it's, it's Carnavale does what Jaden Sancho does of drifts wide and stays wide. But then you've got the one main forward. You've got the creative number 10 underneath. That's what it is. Thank you. Sorry. Okay. Yes. Also, so now I can picture it It's more. also uh, when I believe Mandzukic was playing for Juve. Yeah, Mandzukic was a big center forward who went and played left wing. Mm-hmm. That's what Carnavale is doing uh, for Napoli. All right. You, All right. You think they're, they're also, they're going to have like their left-sided central midfielder, possibly Alamao or Fernando de Napoli. I think it was Alamao who played left center yep. mid. Mm-hmm. And they've got their left back. So Napoli suddenly have a lot of stuff on that left-hand side. Carfu suddenly has a lot of people to go through if he wants to get up front. Mm-hmm. And if he does get up front, then Carnavale is in behind him. Or Diego Maradona is like, you know, trending to the left and getting in behind him. I think that's the tactical key to this game is that Carfu is either going to go forward and leave stuff exposed or he's going to have to stay back. And I think that might be what this game turns on. That's a really good point because even in that 2005 final when Cafu would get forward, a lot of times it was him like sort of single-handedly alleviating pressure of he would have the pace to, if Liverpool tried to crowd them in in their defensive third, AC Milan would kind of go through Cafu and he would break on the counter and he would help get that ball forward. But that does leave you even more exposed now if your right back is bombing forward to try to get out of some pressure and he turns the ball over, the ball gets turned over while he's up that field. You're right, there's a massive gap that I'm going to guess Diego Maradona knows how to exploit. And I'm going to say Ferrara and uh, Renica have mm-hmm. the pace to deal with Enzaghi um, and Shevchenko, which could have been the problem, right? Because Shevchenko is rapid. Um, but I don't, think, I don't think there's a pace problem with Ferrara or Renica where they're going to get exposed. The most interesting thing to me is how much space can Diego Maradona find? Yeah. Because say that he's central, right? He's got Andrea Perlo as the, um, in the defensive midfielder position. And famously, Andrea Perlo is not really a defensive midfielder, right? He's built to do that role on a team that has possession and he can keep possession and spray the ball around. He is not built to win tackles. But to either side of him, you've got Gattuso, who really could play central defensive midfield, right? Um, who is really bite your ankles, Gattuso. And you've got Clarence Seydorf working really hard, left centre mid. To me, it's can Maradona um, stay away from Gattuso, <laughs> stay away mostly from Seydorf, and exploit whatever space there is around Andrea Pirlo. It really makes sense to just sit on Andrea Pirlo in a lot of ways, doesn't it? Because it, it also limits him being able to get the ball because if he has Diego Maradona sort of standing near him, they might not want to do that. But also it allows Diego Maradona to not have to do much defensive running because I can't imagine Andrea Pirlo going sprinting away from him. So I feel like, <laughs> yeah, if he stays central, if nothing else, he will pull in Gattuso and Sedorf and open up space for, uh, for other runners for sure. So are you with me that you think Napoli might win this game? I think yes. And I think All I'm right. going to go as far as to say that I think this is the first game where we have a red card. 
I think that's the first <laughs> red card of the tournament. And I'm going to say it's Gattuso. I feel like Diego Maradona probably does invite some tackles from Gattuso. And I'm going to say we get like a yellow card from Gattuso early on for trying to like stamp his authority. And then he picks up another one on like a desperation challenge. Milan down to 10 players. Napoli eventually find a way through. And I think it probably is like 1-0 in the 81st off of a Maradona goal. Oh, there'll, there'll be some taking turns fouling Maradona as well. Yes. Right? Oh, there certainly will be. <laughs> Yap Stam's going to go through him. Yep. Or Costa Curta, if it's that era, he's going to go through him. Nesta's not opposed to going through people or no. throw, throwing some Fennec type elbows. No. Um, so, yeah, Maradona's going to get beat up, but we know he can handle that, right? We certainly do. And I think, as with Pele, in the end, this just comes down to one team has peak era Diego Maradona mm-hmm. and it's all set up for him to make things happen and great as like Kaká might be on the other side as the number 10 only one of them is Diego Maradona yeah i think that i think that's what it is is that milan team there are so many good players in there maybe this is the problem is that there's so many good players that they all sort of seem to be the same level but i don't have that one player for milan who i feel like yeah Kaká is going to be totally dominant and destroy this team that he could well do that for 45 minutes, but then he could be kind of anonymous and not do his defensive job for another 45, and things go very differently. So, uh, yeah, I think that there's probably no answer to Diego Maradona at that level, and there's nobody on Milan who causes that massive of a threat to Napoli that I see them causing consistent sort of chaos and confusion. So you said 1-0 to Napoli? What yes. minute? What minute was it? I think 82nd is what I had. 82nd? But it, it might, it's, it's actually, see, that's too late, because that's not really what I would expect from Maradona. I feel like it's like 43rd minute with Gattuso already on a yellow, and then Gattuso gets a second yellow early in the second half. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> Just before halftime, Napoli take a 1-0 lead. And then Milan is slightly outnumbered for the rest of the game. Yes. There we go. So today's winners are Santos going yeah. through to the round of 16 after beating Mourinho's Chelsea, and Maradona's Napoli going through after a narrow win over Ancelotti's Milan. Congratulations to all involved. And I look forward to the <laughs> manifestos about how we're wrong, and to that I say, I don't care, because I this mean, is a joke competition that we're really excited about that I genuinely have put a lot of effort into but at the end of the day it is sort of picking two historical teams and choosing one it's more an excuse to talk about the team yeah right yeah, a little yeah. bit it's definitely an excuse to talk about it's the made teams. me really enjoy Diego Maradona way more than I ever have that's for sure <laughs> um all right Tyler I'm, I'm aware that this show's running long mm-hmm. so unless you've got anything else I'm gonna wrap us up I do not all right then Taylor Rockwell I will say thank you for taking the time to talk to me today Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening. Keep physical distancing. Keep washing your hands. And we'll talk to you again very soon.